This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. We hope that you're enjoying the conversations we're having with people of uh, significant influence who have been able to incorporate their faith into their professional practice. This morning, we're talking with Professor Michael Adams. Professor Adams is an internationally recognized specialist in corporate law, governance, security markets regulation, and legal education. He's been writing, teaching, and regularly presenting on all these topics for over 20 years. He's a fellow of the Australian College of Educators. Australian Academy of Law and uh, the Governance Institute of Australia. Professor Adams was the former president of the Australian Law Teachers Association, the Corporate Law Teachers Association and the Chartered Secretaries of Australia. He's a co-author of 10 books, 30 chapters in other books, 50 articles and over 250 conference and seminar paper presentations. In 2000, Professor Adams was the recipient of the Australian University Teacher of the Year for Law and Legal Studies. Professor Adams, it's a delightful to talk with you. Um, that's quite a, a busy program that you have uh, on, on your plate. Um, tell me a bit about what it means to be a, an internationally recognised specialist in corporate law. Oh, thank you very much indeed. It's a real pleasure to be part of this podcast. And uh, actually, if I may, and this sounds very strange, in 2020 during COVID, I actually had the honour to be named Academic Lawyer of the Year for the whole of Australia by Lawyers Weekly, which is one of the big journals that is run. And I have to say, it was complete and utter surprise, And um, but I felt very honoured to have that recognition, uh, which was delightful. I guess the simple answer is um, I love what I do. So even now as I approach uh, in the next few years retirement from a full-time role, I actually have been incredibly blessed to do a job that I absolutely love. And I know not everybody has that position. Uh, and can I encourage your listeners, particularly if you can do something you love, even if you have to do some other bit things in between to, to pay the bills and 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 while you're starting in your career. But I found on pretty early on, over 30 years ago, that I actually love to share not just my technical knowledge, but probably much more importantly, my interest is, um, I'm sure everyone's seen pictures of the United Nations where people have headphones on and people are speaking in any language and it's been translated simultaneously into 20 or 30 languages. And in fact, uh, in 2018, I had the honour of speaking at the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, and my own speech was translated into something like 20 different languages. And I do remember my wife sitting in the court, uh, which is in Luxembourg, which said is a beautiful place, with headphones on, and she was listening to me in French and Mandarin and Spanish and etc. So it's quite a thing. But how it relates to me is I found law, even at university, uh, and then certainly when I did my postgraduate studies, um, 
easy to understand. Now, law is very complex, and we probably will come back to this topic, but I found my area, particularly around the legislation and the corporation's law, particularly in Australia, is a Commonwealth Act with 1,492 sections. I had the ability both to memorise those sections, but more importantly, is that I could explain it to other people, whether it be other lawyers or obviously as an academic to other students and also other professionals, what things really mean in a plain, straightforward. So I, I believe my real skill is to do simultaneous translation. And for a while, while I was in Sydney, before I moved to UNE, I was a consultant to a major law firm. And one of the partners there, who, who's still a friend, his name is Michael Vasakis, used to phone me and say, Michael, um, so it's Michael to Michael, Michael, you know, section 180, you know, what, how, what does it mean in subsection one paragraph B? And rather than him looking it up, I would literally say, well, Michael, this is what it means, and this is how we can apply it in this context. Seriously, that would save them thousands of dollars of time of research and help, and I found it the most natural thing in the world. There is a downside, and, and if I could do a comparison, I know we're going to talk a bit about faith later. Um, the Bible sometimes has very clear, simple statements which we can all understand. And in fact, whenever I think of the parables, at one level, how simple and straightforward, yeah. but the more we dig, there are exceptions, that there are contexts. And sometimes I've been criticised that I oversimplify the law, and a consequence of that is it misses some of the nuances. Mm. However, I guess I do believe 80% of the time uh, things are simple and straightforward, and we spend that extra time on that 20%. And, and for me, reading the Bible and understanding it has that sort of similarity with a distinction um, and I'm so I'm sure you're not going to be surprised at this. The distinction being the Holy Spirit sometimes can actually give us not so much a different interpretation, but context and meaning to now. Mm. So even if the words in the Psalms were written what three thousand years ago, ironically, or should I say more um, special, mm. is that the words can mean something to me right now in 2021. And that's pretty powerful. That doesn't happen in the Corporations Act, I can tell you that. Yeah. Well, actually, um, you're right, we will come to issues of faith uh, a little later in our conversation. But listening to you make that description, my mind is is uh, wrestling with what it implies or some of the questions that it prompts in my mind about the the absolutizing of law and governance and the concept of there being law and how that gets uh, captured in language or in sections or in acts and then how it is then interpreted in, in context. Is that, I mean, in, in some ways you, you would think law should be absolute, continuing, unchanged. That's what precedence is about, I guess, in arguing law. And, and yet we also see that it does change. And it varies depending on nation to nation. As somebody yeah. spent 20 years, more than the 10,000 hours to become an expert, how do you, where do you see that notion of an absolute concept of law and a local generic expression of it? Yeah, that, seriously, that is an excellent question. And um, the answer is law 
particularly within our system of law. So Australia follows Britain, the US, South Africa, most of the Commonwealth countries to know what is known as common law. Mm. And that can be traced back to 1066 and William the Conqueror coming into the UK from France, being totally confused by very localised laws. And as a king who had no real understanding of English culture, history, language, decided to apply a common system. Now, by the way, this was not for common people. This was for the other landlords and knights and people who owned castles and land. But there was a degree of consistency that was to be applied. And that's roughly where we get the concept of common law. And it took nearly 1,500 years mm. before we start to see some breaking down of common law to develop a concept called equity. Mm. Um, and so fairness and justice filling some gaps of the common law, which was pretty harsh. Legislation did exist, um, but the drafting legislation, which is coming to your point, is always going to end up in ambiguities. And I'm going to give a real example to show how it changes. But before I do that, in teaching corporate law and, and other law subjects that I've taught, I've always worked on explaining what is the basic principle. So what do we mean by honesty? What do we mean by reasonable care and diligence? What do we mean by trust? What do we mean by do not abuse your confidential information? And these are key concepts in the Corporations Act. And they were developed literally hundreds of years ago. And I often will cite, by the word cite, that's C-I-T-E, means referencing. So we reference a case, and you mentioned the doctrine of precedent, which simply means that the highest court in the land, so in Australia, the high court, when it makes a decision, it binds all the courts below it. So if you're a local magistrate's court, or you're, uh, uh, and there's a federal magistrate's court, or in New South Wales, we refer to it as a local court, then they are decisions made just at the local level, they don't bind anything. But when you get up to the New South Wales Supreme Court, or any of our state Supreme Courts, courts, they then start to bind. And when you get to the Court of Appeal, that obviously has a stronger binding. And then Australia has one final court, which is the High Court of Australia. And that absolutely binds every court on their decision. So that is the doctrine of precedent in a, in a nutshell. Mm. When Parliament passes legislation, that can override the common law. Mm. Now, obviously, there are some balances, which is the Constitution. So it's got to be constitutional. And some judges will interpret the legislation very, very narrowly. In other words, if the words say uh, a, a black pen must be used to sign a document, if you use a shade of grey or a dark blue pen, that's not black and that would be knocked out if the legislation said that. And that's a very narrow or strict interpretation. Another judge might look at a dark navy blue pen and go, that's pretty close to black. It, 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 yeah, when you scan it and copy it, that's close enough. And so that is known as a liberal. This is not politics, by the way. This is law. That's a liberal yes. interpretation. And as such, it has a wider, and I'm sure some of the listeners have heard of a very famous judge, Justice Michael Kirby, who is very famous for his more liberal interpretations of the laws mm -hmm. to give it the wider meaning. And mm -hmm. that's where the judiciary take what Parliament is doing. And in, in, in an area that's really interesting, not my area, is immigration law. So when Paul um, 
refugees or other people, boat people uh, under the strict, harsh laws of immigration law are going to be sent to Christmas Island. Some judges have shown compassion to actually interpret the words to say, no, the minister can't do that or the immigration department should give them medical exemptions or whatever it may be. And that's where the judges play quite an active role. But to bring it right up to date, during COVID, the New South Wales government, as all the state governments, have issued health regulations. And those health regulations are drafted very, very quickly. I mean, normally legislation will take one to two years to pass. And these poor public servants are having to do it in literally a couple of hours overnight, you know, to get it out the next day. And the consequence of that is a good lawyer could probably run a horse and carriage or a Mack truck through those laws. And that's where it becomes really interesting. So in 2020, so different to this year, but in 2020, when the first stay-at-homes lockdown orders came, you were required to give a reason why you were travelling. Now, obviously, currently there is lockdown occurring, and those those rules have been um, refined. So I want to talk about last year when it was all new and we, we were challenged. And my daughter is a, a lawyer, a five-year standing. She works for a big American law firm. Previously, she worked for a large Australian law firm. And she phoned uh, my wife and I and our and her sister, our, our younger daughter, to say, if the police stop you, and we were travelling from Armadale to Sydney, uh, and we had a reasonable excuse, which was actually a medical appointment, so we, we were within the law, I want to stress that, we weren't breaking the law. If a police officer had pulled us over legally, all we were required to say was our name, and our address, and and if required, produce our driving licence. We were not legally required to give the reason we were travelling. Now, at that time, there was a lot of angst around, oh, the police uh, uh, were, were fining people and charging people for not having a reasonable excuse. The police do not have the authority to make that determination only a court of law. So yes, they could make the assumption that we didn't have a reason and they could issue us with a penalty notice, which is a a fine, but the only legal bit would happen in a court of law, so a local court within New South Wales. So in other words, if we wanted to be awkward, we could simply say, sorry, we're not going to give you a reason. Basically, we'll see you in court. And a magistrate reading the regulations, seeing that I had a medical appointment in New South Wales in, in Sydney, would actually have thrown it out and the police would have wasted time. Now, I'm I'm now tr- just trying to explain the law was drafted in such a hurry yeah. they didn't think through all the parts. As a human being, and the police are just doing their job and the health orders are to protect us, I probably, it, by the way, it didn't happen, uh, probably would say, yes, I am going for this reason, and yes, it's within the regulations. Does that make sense? So there, yeah. there is that legal rights. So are you sort of um, speaking around the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, the, the actual articulation of it and the intention of the law? 
Yes, I am, but also the distinction between the people drafting the law who cannot think of every circumstance they're trying to cover through to the issues of only a court can actually make a determination. The police are the enforcers of the law, but they're not, dare I say, judge and jury. That is left to a the court system. So that's why sometimes the police and other agencies will believe they have all the authority in the world. And actually they don't. They're bound by a set of rules mm. and they must follow those rules. Mm. And I'm sure we've all seen enough TV and movies to know that your rights must be explained to you, that you've been arrested and you have the right to remain silent, which is a fundamental part of our criminal system. I said, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but we all know those parts. So the, you know, I think you're talking Law and Order, that famous US TV show. You know? oh, there's it's even in Australia. The, there's, yeah, yeah. But the idea that the police can't just do things without warning you that obviously you have the right to a lawyer and representation, and more importantly, if you say things, particularly with modern technology where there are body cameras recording what's happening, you say things in the heat of the moment you may regret later and as such, it is actually better to stay silent and be prepared to give that information. Um, and as I said, there are some basic limitations around this. I should also say that it's interesting in this current COVID situation that I believe, and I would stand to be corrected, Victorians only had five reasons why they could you know, move around outside the five to 10 kilometre area, whereas in New South Wales, there are 14 reasons. In New South Wales, we don't define the term essential worker, mm. whereas in Victoria, an essential worker is defined. But of course, the moment you have a definition, mm. somebody will be looking for a loophole around yeah. that definition, or it will yeah. cause angst. Yeah, yeah, yeah gotcha. Uh, so in, in that sort of space, uh, what is a good law? What what would be the hallmarks of good law? Yeah, the, the answer is it should be clear. Um, it should be fair and reasonable and so applied to to pro to all, all parties who, who is aimed to do so. It should be targeted. Um, it should try, and this is a very strong principle, it should try to cover the mischief, that's the funny legal term we use, of the problem it's trying to solve. So to use those New South Wales health regulations, and, and a health regulation is what is known as delegated legislation. So there's an Act of Parliament which creates the New South Wales health system, and it gives powers to the minister to pass regulations and they are nearly always for a fixed time so they're not they don't run forever they will run for six months or a year and then they they actually finish they mm -hmm. don't whereas an act of parliament unless it says otherwise once it's passed and it's given royal assent mm -hmm. by the governor general it will then last forever until or until repealed mm. so the, the this uh the concept of i want to push a little further into your concepts of law being practical pragmatic and idealistic the variations that are possible in, in a local expression does all of that fall from a universal concept of of morality is that what law is trying to capture or is that a wrong conception of what the law of the land is trying to do um that's a, a difficult question uh, to answer because the laws through legislation, whether it be state, 
territory or, or, or federal, uh, of course, are passed by parliament. And as such, parliament is full of politicians. And so in some areas of law, uh, like corporate law, both parties, major parties, will come together and have a degree of acceptance that they're trying to make the economy work better, protect shareholders, protect employees. So there's a, a sort of a common good. But in some areas of law, the political division mm. causes quite a contrast. Probably the area, and I said, ironically, my daughter Lucy works in this area, and, and I haven't worked in this area, is employment law. Mm. Um, and again, I am simplifying it because obviously we, we only have an hour or so available. In employment law, if you have a liberal coalition national government, state or federal, they tend to pass laws which are very much pro the employer. Mm. When we have a Labour government, state, federal, they tend to pass employment laws which are more pro-union, pro the employee. Mm. Now, in some areas like human rights, there's a lot of agreement. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to see discrimination, sexual, mm. uh, uh, race, etc. I mean, there's there is genuine agreement in that area. But in other aspects, there's really big distinctions. And each time, time we have a change of parliament, one of the first areas of laws to change will be the Fair Work Australia legislation and the framework works. So that's where the political views will override. The, the other views. In some areas of law, um, the politicians will agree to have an open vote where your politics should not play a role. So sometimes there is a, an agreement on all political parties to have a free vote. An area like that, which is one that probably you and I would feel uncomfortable with, is euthanasia. Mm. So the voluntary assistance of dying. Mm. Often the politicians will be told, take off your liberal Labour hat or the other parties, of course, and actually put on your conscience yeah. and then make a decision on that basis. Other areas, I'm afraid the party line is the only line. So there's somebody called a chief whip who will run around and 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 get everybody in the coalition or everyone in the Labour Party to say, you must vote this particular way. But the people drafting the laws, to be honest, are nearly always public servants. They are doing the best for the country and the politicians may have input and obviously they debate it, but they are advised by professional advisors. And as I said, most of the areas of law I work in, I would argue the common good plays a major role. And a lot of the case law actually does have uh, Christian principles behind it. One of the most important ones is the tort of negligence. And the judge who determined that in 1932 in a very famous case called Donahue against Stevenson um, was the head of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland. And uh, one of the tests was known as the neighbour test. And that definition actually comes straight out of the Bible. So he brought his Christian perspective of who is a neighbour from the Bible into the law of the land. And we still have the tort of negligence and we still have the neighbour test. So, there, And there are many other examples where the Christian views. However, we do live in a secular society. 
And there's a degree of consciousness by politicians that their faith may inform their decisions and and some of their leanings. But obviously, when they pass legislation, it must be appropriate to all people that it covers. Yeah. So that's interesting. We'll come back, if you're happy to, to the idea of how uh, your presuppositions, a person's perspective on the world and basic beliefs govern their approach to law and their understanding of it and what is appropriate and what is But already you've indicated that uh, you have your own understanding of the world of faith. Can you share with us a little bit about how you came to an understanding of, of the role of faith in your life and your profession? Yeah, thank, thank you. So um, um, my father was agnostic um, and you probably may have picked up from the accent that I grew up in England. And um, my mother uh, was a Christian. She was part of the the Church of England, Anglican Church. Um, And then something happened and and I guess she lost her faith. Um, I guess I believe that God doesn't let people just disappear. Um, But her her faith certainly changed. Uh, I have two older brothers. Both of them are atheists and have no interest in, in religion at all, although do certainly respect my views. I, even through university age and late school, had a concept of God, Mm. a superpower, superior power. I I actually couldn't understand how nature could be random. Yeah, there are too many beautiful examples of whether it be the way bees make honey and their interactions right through to the rings on a tree and and cloud formations, a whole bunch of other things, um, all pointed in a direction that it was more easier to believe a single God than it was to believe it was just you know, a coincidence. Mm. However, I had next to no understanding of Jesus. I mean, I obviously as an historical character was well aware and I you know, celebrated, and I use that very loosely, Christmas and, and Easter type thing, but, but not a, from a religious perspective. Um, my wife grew up, a wife of 32 years, grew up, uh, a Catholic and her, her parents were Catholics and um, and and practiced and both both by belief as well as by culture and custom, but also in practical ways. We, uh, in fact, my my late father-in-law was a treasurer of a of the St Joseph's Parish in Narrabeen and supported the priest there very well in, indeed, and, and was a genuine man of faith. I, I have absolutely no doubt of that. Um, Melissa uh, had let faith drift. We would go occasionally to a Catholic mass um, and and that was rewarding, but there was still not that personal connection. Mm. Then in in 1997, we were invited uh, by, in fact, a colleague of mine as we were both junior academics leading towards uh, um, becoming professors, both of us, and he and a few other people invited us to an alpha course run out of Holy Trinity Brompton with Nikki Gumbel. And I went along and my wife was very keen. I have to say she was genuinely searching at that time. I went along because that's what you do. You support your partner. And I thought it'd be an interesting evening. I was impressed with the talk uh, that the videos that they used to use were very powerful. And Nikki Gumbel himself before becoming a 
uh, minister in a church was a barrister. So the whole legal evidence and such things always attractive to me. I also liked the fellowship. We had a meal together, we chatted, and these people didn't seem to have two heads. They seemed quite normal, which is quite a, a, a thing. Anyway, we did the Alpha course, and in about week five, week six, um, something significant happened. Uh, I had a secretary uh, who happened to be the same age as my mum, and I was rushing out of my office in Sydney. I was at UTS then, and I said to Shirley, Oh, how are your grandchildren going? Like it was literally just, I'm walking out the door. I have no idea why it popped into my head. I had two little girls at that time who were in primary school and somehow I just reached out and, she, and, and Shirley had twins. And she said, Michael, I haven't spoken to the twins nor my daughter or son-in-law for three months. And I felt so selfish that I had not picked up that this major thing was happening in her life. And I don't know what got in my head. And I said, Shirley, I will pray for you tonight. Yeah. That night, I've been reading a book called Betrayed by Stan Telshin, which is a struggle of a Jewish man trying to understand where Jesus fits into the world. And that book provided for me a lot of answers to questions I had during Alpha. And at about 11 o'clock at night, I turned to my wife in bed and said, would you pray for my forgiveness and my salvation? Melissa prayed a beautiful prayer. And Alicia, all I was able to do is mumble amen, but basically I accepted I was a sinner. I accepted that the only way for salvation was to accept Jesus Christ into my life. And I went to sleep. At about 5 a.m., I had the most vivid dream of Jesus Christ I could ever imagine. Now, now this is a complex story and beyond a time. It has now been written as a chapter in a book, and I'm happy to give you the reference to that book. So my testimony has been now formally recorded and is actually for sale at Kurong as part of a number of, of series of, of testimonies. But the point I want the listeners to hear is I was amazingly converted by that dream yeah. and a bit like uh, 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 now we live in the country rural new south wales i'm used to beef cattle being seared and so there's a marking put on the cattle so you know who it belongs to well god seared my heart with faith yeah. and from that moment i absolutely believed and it has not changed ever since I woke up, I had tears pouring down my, my eyes, my face, and I woke my wife up, who's not a morning person, and said the immortal words, darling, are you awake? And, of course, she said, I am now. I shared my experience, and she was uh, ecstatic for me and a bit disappointed because she was still searching. She had a different experience, I must say, a few weeks later in church, but I had this amazing conversion. Mm. And when I, the end of the story is when I walked into work the next morning, Shirley had the biggest smile on her face and she said, Michael, did you pray for me? And it was literally like an accusation. I said, Shirley, yes, I did. And she said, my daughter phoned last night oh, and we've completely reconciled. And can I have the day off to be with the grandchildren? How could I say no? Oh so God blessed me in such an amazing way through a third party. And that has been the experience since 1997. And we have seen it many, many times. 
And um, I'm not sure if I shared before, in 2010, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma stage four, which means mostly you don't live. Um, I was given between three months and six months to live. And my wife and I both felt that a, such a major tragedy could um, shake our faith. All I can say is, one, I'm here and it's 2021. So obviously the medication did work, the chemotherapy and the radiation. But much more importantly, my faith grew exponentially. My reading the Bible, my closeness to Jesus. And if I can survive that, I can survive anything. And so for us, it was a real testament to the power of Jesus. As I said, I, I give recognition to the medical experts of Royal North Shore. My chemo came from Germany. You know, all the right things happened to keep me alive. But I feel God was there every step of the way. And for me, that really, my, my faith ceiling absolutely came true in that time of genuine crisis. Yeah, that's a remarkable story. And the, the encounter that you describe of, of uh, completely against all rationality and logic, and it's it's not cognitive. There is something deeper, more more quintessential than that. Is a power. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. It's also given me the opportunity to share it quite regularly in different formats and different ways. Because of course, it's my journey. Nobody can challenge. You know, people can say they don't believe in God and they don't believe in Jesus and they don't believe in the Holy Spirit, but I can demonstrate personally directly i had an experience of jesus christ i know i could never have got through the mental anguish of that period if i may share one last thing is is my wife suffered uh, when she was doing the hsc her mother died of a stroke and that's traumatic for anyone at such a tender age mm. our biggest fear was that a child would be have to go through that same experience mm. lucy was in year 12 when i had my cancer yes. oh dear how incredibly significant is that? she she studied very hard and then said i'm very proud she's a, a practicing lawyer in a big firm my younger daughter was in year 10 Jessica went on to be a radiation specialist dealing with cancer at Royal North Shore. She actually works on the machine that saved my life. How incredible is that? Wow. Isn't that pretty amazing? That is really beyond belief, isn't it? Professor Adams, can it I is. for, for somebody who's spent all of your professional life dealing with, with the logic of argument and, and rationalizing and analyzing, dissecting, how do you bring together that part of your faith and what you've just described as that that transcend transcendent encounter with with a, a life that's beyond our own well the first is it and it does frustrate me when people do the whole lawyer jokes i mean we all like a joke of all our professions but when people have a go that lawyers are yeah liars and cheaters and money hungry and all that um, that's really unfair. In any profession, you have a range of people from incredibly generous, uh, and in law we use the word pro bono, working for free, through to those who obviously want to make lots of money and, and are willing to do anything to get there. But I think that's true of, dare I say, dentists or accountants or or even pastors and ministers. You know, yes. ego, pride can get in the way, etc. 
But I actually know many Christian lawyers. I know many judges. In fact, I had lunch uh, about two months ago with an amazing federal judge who's been a Christian and we were chatting and I actually found out he's in a Bible study with the head of I'm part of the Churches of Christ, New South Wales, an ACT movement. Uh, and he's in the same Bible study as, as actually the leader of that church in New South Wales. And that came up as a conversation completely out of the blue, which was fantastic. I was so excited for both uh, both friends in, in that sense. Um, so I actually think, first of all, that yeah, that's a misconception. The other is, is a bit like scientists. You know, often people say, how can a, a, um, a scientist you know, believe in, in, in the Bible. And in fact, um, even some of our most prominent and famous scientists, including uh, um, Darwin, actually had an amazing belief. I mean, a lot of people forget Darwin's wife was a major player in the church at that time and a strong believer. And there is some good writings in the end of Darwin's life about the role of faith in things. Mm. Um, and sometimes we take theories, and I want to stress they are theories, and we do tend to stretch them and, and say, oh, it means this, that, and the other. And I, don't, I think it's always a bit more complex mm. than that. So being a lawyer, um, where it has helped, I guess, in, is in the interpretation of the words, so the way I read the Bible, I, I, I tend to bring some analytical skills. I also like the, uh, I, I tend to use an NIV study Bible, and, and as such, you know, the has all those lots of footnotes at the bottom, which I'm used to in journal articles and, and actually reading to get a better understanding. And context is, is so important. I do honestly believe that the Bible is, is God's breathed words and, of course, written by, by humans. And, of course, there are multiple translations, and that sometimes causes angst. And sometimes we do have to go back and look at, you know, uh, we tend to have one word of love, and we know there are many different words for love and what that means. But I think we have to be really careful not to play semantics. And, and I guess I've come to the conclusion over, you know, the last 25 years that the Holy Spirit actually plays a major role in our interpretation. So there's not just the work we do. Um, the last two years since I've been in Armadale, I have had the opportunity to give some messages, some sermons, and the work and effort that goes into doing that is may, way more than I ever do for a lecture or a, an academic paper. But I have to say, I hope the people listening to me in the congregation learn something but I always, a bit like Bible study in home group, that sort of thing, I always learn much, much more. Yeah, the depth we go into looking at those words, but I believe strongly that the Holy Spirit tends to focus on the meaning. And recently uh, we've been working through Galatians and particularly Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And since delving into that in some degree of depth, I cannot tell you how many times in the last month I have drawn on those passages mm. and heard other either other explanations or it's made a difference. I've gone to do something and I've thought, am I demonstrating joy mm. and love and patience and peace and goodness, mm. etc. Do you know in other words? So and I and I can't think that's just human. Yeah. I I ha, I, I find it easier to believe I'm being prompted by the spirit. Yeah. So what what I'm hearing Professor Adams, is that you? there is no contest between your rationality and your faith. In fact, there's a, a complementary relationship between those things. Your, your intelligence informs your faith and your faith informs the way you analyse and interpret and pull things together. 
at least in regards to how it, how you approach scripture. Absolutely, absolutely. And can I just flip it uh, the other way? In in my Bible study currently and and, and previously, um, we share the leadership aspect. And those that have not, who are in the group, who have not had the benefit of undergraduate, postgraduate, postdoc type studies still have the most amazing insights into God's word. Mm. So just because somebody's been to university for a long time, that gives them no more right or insight than anybody else in the sense that God can equip us to have that knowledge and experience and understanding. And that's one of the beautiful things when you sit around in a small group and talk about, as well as how it impacts on your life, the application is just as important. But I've experienced people with relatively academically low levels of education that have had most amazing insights. And I would have thought, oh, my goodness, never, ever would have I thought of that. You're absolutely right. So, you know, this should not be seen that, you know, just because I'm a professor that I have any more greater insight other than I, I'm happy to work hard at trying to understand or look at the linguistic parts, etc. But at the end of the day, the meaning can come from absolutely anyone. And that's one of the powers of the Bible. It is open to anyone to read and understand stand you've been describing a a beautiful personal encounter with with something that in lots of ways if if i describe the way like setting you free of some of those senses of guilt and missing purpose and all those sorts of issues christianity is often seen by people as having a bit of a problem with legal aspects that it's about a bunch of laws that intending to, to rob you of fun or of freedom and, and you described that encounter in that in the in the night of becoming aware that you were a sinner that you were subject to judgment how do you make sense of that contrary comp, uh, conception of of how law fits with christian experience I I think you're absolutely right. A lot of people are bound up by the rules, whether they be the Ten Commandments or whether they be um, the Pharisees and the detailed Jewish laws of, you know, you can't turn the light switch on Sabbath, etc. I think a lot of people self-impose their guilt and their feelings of not being good enough. So it's like a a human barrier. But actually... um, I think the rules that do flow naturally from the Bible are often about protecting us Mm. and um, the rules are pretty loose. Now, I I actually play competitive basketball uh, three times a week and one of them is a full competition where we have very strict rules, timings, the way you foul, things are recorded. Um, And on Thursdays, that's on a Monday night, on a Thursday, I play three on three, which is pretty casual. Uh, They're they're all close friends. It's virtually like a training session. And then on a Sunday, we play pickup, which is for two hours. Five people turn up and there's five in a basketball team and you just play. And there are virtually no rules. You roughly keep count of the score, et cetera. And, you know, I probably have the most fun with pickup on a Sunday, which is free flowing. No, you know, you, 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 everyone knows the basic rules, if you know what I mean, but 
there is actually just get on and play. And when you get tired, we, we rotate and the next five go on. And I have a ball. And I love that I'm one of the oldest that plays. Um, we have some uni students who play. We have a whole range of international students and, and academics playing. And there really are people in their um, uh, year 10. It's about the youngest. Uh, so what's that, 16? Uh, quite a lot of 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds. That's pretty cool and i feel god has the same thing you need some rough guidance but actually um the holy spirit will guide you in some areas there are areas of debate of course and i think we have to take those carefully but it's a bit like you know eating food you know there's probably good reasons why the jews didn't eat pork and why the jews didn't eat seafood that's been on on the bottom of the ocean or the river uh, you know for basic health protections um but isn't it more important that if we know somebody doesn't like pork because they don't like the taste of it, they don't like the idea of it being a pig, why would we then serve it to someone? Yeah. You know, that graciousness. And, and I think the other big issue, to answer your question more directly, is that I think people struggle to receive something for free. We're mm. all used to paying for something or earning it mm. to actually through grace, mm. it's not what we did. It's what Jesus did on the cross. Mm. And I think people struggle with that idea. And I think I probably struggled with it until I simply accepted. Uh, I wasn't a bad person, yeah. um, but I clearly was a sinner and I do feel short of the glory of God. And once I could accept that and to think that one man, fully man and fully God was willing to die, who was completely innocent, mm. He did nothing wrong, no sin, was willing to die just for me, mm. for my forgiveness. That's pretty powerful. And he did it 2,000 years ago, and he would have done it today, he would have done it tomorrow. You know, it's mind-blowing. I have to say the concept of uh, one loving God for the whole world uh, is pretty mind-blowing. But I have no doubt, none in the slope, not a shred. That's why I did it. Professor Adams, there's so much more that I'd like to ask you. I'd really like to find out um, some of your perspectives around what it might mean for Christians as we start to face an increasingly secular society and an increasingly um, pluralist view and what the expressions in, in our legal sense that are things that are governing our society. But maybe we would you be happy if we maybe organise another conversation and we visit some of those big things? I would love to come back and talk to your listeners again and, and try and share, to the best of my ability, some of those points. But I really have enjoyed the whole conversation, to be honest. And, uh, you know, I feel very proud to be the head of the law school here at the University of New England, as I was the dean at uh, Western Sydney Uni and before that a professor at UTS. So uh, I've, I've loved what I have done as an educator but I must admit, uh, I do see my value as a, as a an heir, as a son of of God, and that's pretty special indeed. In our preamble before we hit the record button, you were mentioning how you feel that God has brought the alignment of your personal gifting into the expression of your your vocation, your calling, and I'm just so um, delighted to see somebody operating in that space where clearly the way God formed them and the capacities that they, that God deposited in them, even before you knew him and that he's brought you to a place where he's able to now touch that with his spirit and release that in a way that is of such general 
benefit and particular benefit for the people that sit and listen to your sermons and receive the ministry of your of your fellowship in that sense oh thank you professor adams i too have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation it was partly um, one of the other things i wanted to ask you is about is uh, what's a good teacher you know you've received these fantastic recognitions of the excellence of your education as as a principal of a school i'd really be interested to know your, your thoughts on that but We'll put pause rather than stop on on our uh, interview together. Professor Adams, thank you so much for your time. Be assured of our prayers and our our sincere thanks for your generous gift of of this space. Thank you very much indeed. I, I have enjoyed the conversation.